0: To move through the book of Judges. We've 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 hit some stories that are uh, well known. Gideon with his fleece is pretty well known, and then we hit some stories that are not as well known. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Judges today. If you need a Bible, slip your hand up. Daniel will get you one. Uh, but today we come across the story of Samson. And if 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 I ask for a show of hands, of... Who at least knows the name Samson? Most hands would probably go up. And you could probably tick off some basic uh, points about his life. Samson was really, really strong. Some of you maybe who read the story with a different lens would say Samson was really, really weak. Because the story of Samson is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? In the one sense, he's the strongest man of the Bible. In another sense, he's, he's the weakest man that you read about. Uh, he has great successes and he has great failures. God is with him. God is not with him. Uh, he's God's man, but he's, he's not God's man. Who is this mysterious dude? Samson. And we've got to get past the, the oohs and the ahs of his great feats of strength and get to what God is communicating in the story. This story takes place over chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Some judges got one verse. Samson gets four chapters. Why the length? Because I think it takes a while to develop what God is trying to communicate here. And it's not, men, go out and be strong. Uh, it's not, look what happens when you work out too much. You know, it's it's deeper than a surface level reading, but we're going to start that in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we get the only birth narrative in the book of Judges, and we're not going to read all the verses of 13, 14, 15, and 16, so I'm going to exercise my prerogative as a preacher and only read select portions. It may not be your favorite portions, it's the ones I chose, okay? But we're not going to read chapter 13. What we're going to do is just, I'm going to kind of convey the story to you, and then we'll just pick up in the last few verses of 13. But you have Israel failing again. There's a couple of judges that are named real quickly at the end of chapter 12. You don't get their story. You don't get who they, what, really what they were about or what really happened. It's just uh, the cycle again and again and again. And then chapter 13, verse 1, the cycle again after being Delivered over and over and over and over. What is Israel's response to God? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the Philistines are the oppressors in this episode. The focus is on the oppression of the Philistines. Interestingly, this time, what we would normally get after this, right, was after the oppression. And Israel cried out to the Lord, right? Every cycle we get, they did evil again. God handed them over. They were oppressed again. They cried out to the Lord. This time, they didn't even cry out. Missing. That's missing in this in this whole four chapters. Now, once they cry out to Yahweh. But Yahweh steps up. And what's interesting, he doesn't just pick a dude or a gal that already exists. He creates his own. So he comes to a couple. He comes to uh, the wife. We don't get her name. And tells her... Uh, I know you've been barren, you've not been able to have kids, and you've probably consigned yourself to, hey, you know, we're just not going to have kids. But you're going to have a kid. You're going to have a son. And he's going to be a Nazirite. Meaning, if you go back to number six, there was a Nazirite vow. You wouldn't cut your hair. You can't eat unclean food, and you can't drink alcohol. You can't touch dead bodies. Stuff like that. He's going to be like that from the womb. So, Mom, you can't touch alcohol, and you can't eat unclean foods, Because he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb until his death. Side note, if you ever want to talk to somebody about the sanctity of life in the womb, you can start there as one of your verses. Because he's already a Nazarite, and he hasn't been born yet. But I'll leave that with you. As he gets down to the end of chapter 13, there's a little bit of a back and forth. The angel of the Lord appears to the woman. The woman uh, conveys it to the husband, Manoah, Manoah is kind of incredulous. Wait a minute, what, what are we supposed to do with him? It's not that he doesn't believe her. It's like, what are, what are we supposed to do with this Nazarite? I, we weren't having, planning, on, ha, really planning on having kids, and now we've got this special kid. What are we supposed to do with him? Could, would he appear again? And so the angel of the Lord appears again and basically explains to him the same thing that he told his wife. And then uh, he proves to them that he is the angel of the Lord, He's afraid because he thinks we're gonna, he's going to die. In verse 22, the wife comes with her logic and her poise and says, no, he's, we're not going to die. Why would he give us this promise of raising this child if he was just going to kill us? Uh, and so he, she talks him down. And at the end, verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Estel. Real place in real life. This really happened. And God began to stir in this man. Sounds real promising, right? Sounds great. God is sick of using the, the judge from over here and the judge from over there, the lazy judge, the questioning judge, this guy over there. Look, I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to make him a Nazarite. He's going to be extra-vowed, extra-disciplined. And I'm going to use my own guy. Sounds promising until you read his story. Now, most of us probably know about Samson and Delilah, but many of us maybe forget about Samson and the lion. And that's what I want us to read in chapter 14. Take a look with me. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go, take a wife, go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We'll pause there a second. We have to take pauses as we go through the chapter just to maybe clarify some things so we can get the story in front of us. But you must be reminded that it's not that the parents are racist. It's not like, Samson, we don't want you to marry anyone. People that look like us, talk like us, it's not about that. It's about God's... covenant with israel when he told them when you go in take them all out because if you don't take them all out you're going to marry them and if you start marrying them you're going to start worshiping their gods that was the promise over and over they will be a snare to you and the whole reason why we're in this book of judges and the whole reason why it keeps getting worse and uglier is because of this kind of thing samson's supposed to be their deliverer and we get this promising end to chapter 13 as soon as you start reading chapter 14 He hasn't done any delivering. He's already marrying them. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she was right in Samson's eyes. Quick note, they're walking down together, him and his parents, right? At some point they split up because when the lion attacks and he destroys the lion, they don't know about it. How? When did they split up? Why did they split up? Did he tell them go on ahead? What happened? The lion came from behind and he turned around, but the parents kept going? Imagine how long the book of Judges would be if, he, if it answered all our questions. But it's, it's, we have to note that the parents are not around when this lion episode happens. Verse 8. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, you're not supposed to go, Ooh, I wish you would have told me where, it, where it's been. It wasn't jarred from Target? Like, I don't want to eat it out of the stomach of a dead lion. If if that bothers your American sensibilities, how would it bother your Jewish sensibilities? With uncleanness. And so he doesn't just touch a carcass. He eats stuff out of a dead body. And then the parents that sanctified him, as he grew as a Nazarite, he now desecrates not only himself, but his parents. Verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. Big party. He's getting married. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. Uh, I don't know exactly all the history and the story. Background here. But um, I'm guessing most people didn't have a walk in closet full of outfits and get stuck with inundation on Sunday mornings, going, "Ah, I wore that last week. Um, That doesn't go with that. I'm going to switch it with that. I'm going to, you know, how about this combo with that combo? Hun, does this match? I'm guessing they didn't quite have that problem. He's saying, if you guys solve the riddle, I have to give you 30 changes of clothes, 30 new outfits. If you guys lose, I get 30 new outfits. They say, okay. He gives them the riddle. Based, obviously, on the experience with the lion and the honey that he found in the carcass of the lion. Verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife. They can't figure out. Four days in. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Man, they really wanted those outfits. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? Ooh, that sounds like a marriage going on the right foot. Verse 17. She wept before him. The seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? We figured it out. You owe us 30 outfits, dude. And don't forget the underwear too, the linen garments. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, don't refer to your wife as a heifer, but... He, he, he's got a weird choice of words, but he's ticked because he knows what happened. And in verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon. Okay. Where Philistines live and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle in hot anger. He went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So things aren't going well in the life of Samson. Samson, uh, he's wise. He's poetic. He's trying to get 30 new outfits out of this wedding deal. And because he just could not take the nagging uh, from his wife, the weeping, the begging, uh, he told her to answer the riddle. She ratted on him out of fear for her own safety. They were going to burn her and her dad alive. And in his anger, he goes down and strikes down 30 men. And it's his first display of unparalleled uh, power. He just picks 30 guys. If, if you were to walking down the street and you had a, a nice new outfit on, you're dead. Because he's choosing the outfit. And he's collecting them in his bag. And then he brings them back, gives them to the people. And goes back to his father's house um, in hot anger. He's he's fuming over all of this. As we see the episode unfolding, we see that the spirit rushes upon him to get this done. But he doesn't seem like the type of person that would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't seem like a God-following, God-honoring kind of guy. God is using him despite himself, not because of his character. And then, when you look at chapter 15, we'll just kind of paraphrase chapter 15. He went to go visit his wife with a young goat, possibly to celebrate uh, an ancient version of a big bouquet of flowers and chocolates, I guess. And then finds out, oops, it's not your wife. The father says, I, th- I thought you were upset. You left and you were angry, so I gave her to your best man. And so now he's really angry. He's angry at the Philistines. He's angry at everybody who allowed this to happen. He takes 300 foxes, ties them together, and lights a torch between the foxes' tails. So they're running in all kinds of different directions and destroys their grain. Now the Philistines are mad. Who destroyed all our grain? Well, they find out it's Samson because he was ticked. And so they came. And you remember when they said, well, if you don't give us the answer to the riddle, we're going to burn you and your father alive. Well, they do it anyway. Because of Samson's actions in the wheat field. They burn her alive. With their father. Now they're going after Samson. Samson. finds out what they did. To this woman and her father. And verse 8. He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. So they're angry. They go after her. Burn her alive. He gets mad and he stacks them hip upon thigh in a big pile. Now they're chasing him. The Philistines, verse 9, they come to Judah. They tell the men of Judah, uh, Here, we're coming, we're coming, to, we're, coming or, we're attacking. They say, Why have you come against us? They said, We're coming to bind Samson because of what he did to us. Then, three, so 3,000 men go to tell Samson, Hey, man, what's going on? Not three men or 30. They round up 3,000 men to just go have a talk with Samson. Because, you know, if, he's on the, if he wakes up on the wrong side of bed, man, you need 3,000 dudes at least. They tell Samson what's going on. Samson says, okay, bind me and take me to them, but promise that you won't attack me. They say, okay. So they bind him. They take him to the Philistines. And when they arrive, he breaks the cords, looks around, finds another carcass, rips the jawbone off of a dead donkey, presumably, and then proceeds to strike them down with the jawbone of the donkey. Verse 15, 1,000 men. Now these aren't 1,000 random dudes walking around in nice outfits anymore. These are the men that came to attack Judah. And while all the 3,000 Judah guys are looking or watching, doing nothing, He's handling his, all their business. They, they should have been handling throughout the whole book of Judges with a job on. Yeah, but he's not doing it because he's worshipful. He's not doing it because it's in the name of Yahweh. He's, he's doing it because he's mad. He's doing it because he wanted to marry them and it didn't work out. He's doing it because they solved his riddle. He's doing it because it doesn't fit Samson's plan. So Samson comes up with another poem, verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. So he finished his slaughtering. The place was called Jawbone Hill, essentially. But he's dying of thirst. He's thirsty. And he's at his human limits. Even though he struck down all these guys, he still burned calories to do it. And he's dying literally of thirst. He prays, first prayer. You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So in, in private with God, he admits to God that it was God that did it. But in his song, it's, ah, me, you know. But in private, God, I know you're the one that did it. I need water. And so God causes water to flow from this rock, and he calls the place Enhokori. Which, by the way, if you're ever in the city, there's a great little Korean joint called Enhokori. Awesome bibimbap. But that's just a little side note if you're ever in the city. I was reading this, I'm like, Enhokori. I thought it was a Korean name, man. They took it from the book of Judges. Anyway, it's important to note, he changed the name from Jawbone Hill, what I accomplished, to en what God accomplished. He brought water out, and if he hadn't brought water out, I'd be dead. And then look at verse 20. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And remember when, you, when your parents would read you fairy tales or you read your kid fairy tales, you know, and it always ends, and they lived happily ever after. You know the story's over. If it says, and they lived happily ever after, there's not another page. You close the book and you tell them good night, go to sleep. Well, in the book of Judges, every story of a judge ends with this line, not they lived happily ever after, but the judge lasted this many years. So here's the story ending. But then when you read verse 16, Samson went to Gaza. Boom, it continues. This is the sequel. And this is important because we have two halves of the life of Samson. It it comes in two volumes, and we just finished volume one. Volume two is like starting over again, like hitting the reset button and starting again. And we're going to see a difference that's really important. But it's the story of Samson and Delilah. It starts very similarly. It doesn't. How did the previous episode start? He goes down. What's the first thing he does as a judge? He sees a woman. Here's volume two. What's the first thing he does? Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Okay, here we go again. The Gazites were told Samson was there. So they come, and they hide in the gates of the city until the light of the morning. They think when, when it's light, we'll leave these gates, and we'll go and we'll kill him. But Samson finds out. He lays till it gets dark. Their plan is to attack in the light. Samson's plan is to attack in the dark, verse 3. And at midnight, he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. The Hebron's like 60 miles away, guys. And these aren't gates like the front doors to the church. They're not even gates to like a a, a housing complex, you know, like a gates to um, a, a community. These are gates to a city. These gates are suppo- they're there to fend off armies and, like, catapults and chariots. They're two stories high, made of metal, iron, steel, something. And he just, he, he, he just lifts them up. Now, if you go, now I don't care how much adrenaline or even if they had steroids back then, nobody could do that. Exactly. Because he didn't do it. It wasn't Samson, was it? God is doing it. You know, if, when we see movies or pictures of Samson, he's always real muscular, right? I always say the same thing I say of Superman. Why is Superman so muscular? He, he's only powerful because he lives in a different context. The molecules are different, and what's heavy to us is just not heavy to him. I, I think it would be more amazing if Superman was skinny, to speak to how powerful he is. It's not the muscles doing it. Samson may not have been buff. He may not have been tall. I think it would speak even more clearly to the power of Yahweh if he was a scrawny-looking dude walking around with a jawbone. Hey, guys, come here! You know, little what we would think of like a geeky nerd or something, and he still accomplishes it. Not by his might, but by the Lord's. So he picks up this gate, and just hauls it off. He doesn't even fight them. He's just like, here's your gate. Anybody could attack you now. It's mocking them. After this, verse 4, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The Philistines want to take advantage of his relationship with Delilah. They tell Delilah, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. If you get him to tell us what the secret is, what is the weakness, what is, what is his kryptonite, right? What is the thing that we can do so that we can take him and bind him and conquer him? And so she tries to tell him, she tells him, tell me what, you know, hey, let's not keep secrets if you really love me, you know, that whole deal. She kind of, you know, probably gives him the cold shoulder, gets distant from him. And he's like, okay, if you tie seven fresh bowstrings around me, then I can't break that. So she ties seven bowstrings around him. And then in the middle of the night, hey, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he goes, what? He just breaks them all. And she goes, ah, that didn't work. In the meantime, Philistines are actually waiting for the signal. Did it work? Because if it worked, they're going to pounce on him and then give her the silver. This happens over and over. If you use new ropes, if you tie my hair a certain way, And she finally, just with the nagging and the persistence and the manipulation and the pressure that she keeps putting on him, the Hebrew says, she pressed him over and over till he couldn't take it anymore. Verse 16, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her, if you use a razor and shave my head, I'll just be like any other man. She wakes up, or she wakes him up. Presumably starts poking him before he wakes up just to see if she was messing with him. Uh, In verse uh, 19, she began to torment him. She saw that the strength wasn't there. So then she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke up from his sleep. I'll go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him, gouged his eyes out brought him to Gaza with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So that's giving us a little clue as to the folly of the Philistines. Should have killed him. You ever watch the movie where the villain finally has the hero? He's got him, man, dead to rights, and he decides to give a speech. Oh, I finally got you after all these years. I finally, and before the speech is over, you know, the sidekick comes and saves the day or something, and it's like, actually, the hero lost. It was the villain's idiocy with the long lecture. Same kind of scenario. They have him. They took his eyes out, and they're like, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's make him a plaything. He's going to grind the mill for us. All that grain that he destroyed, now you're going to pay back. Not taking notice that his hair is growing back. Like, how dumb can you be? But, you know, he's blind. He's defeated. And they want to be entertained. The lords of the Philistines, all the big head honchos of Philistia, gather together to, uh, for a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. So it's a, a pagan idol worship service. And all the big, head, uh, big shots are there. They say, "God has given our God, has given Samson our enemy into our hands." Well, that's not true. Yahweh did. It was Yahweh's choice to leave him. If Yahweh's spirit rushed upon him, you guys would be dead. But the credit goes to Dagon because of Samson's failures. God is not getting the glory that's due to him. Instead Dagon is getting glory in this worship service. And the people saw them, they praised their God, and they gave God their God, the credit. They said, call Samson over here so he can entertain us. We want to see him. We want to see him grovel. We want to see him with his eyes plucked out. So they made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Verse 27, now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained Samson's second prayer. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. There's the second ending. Now it's for real over. There's no volume three, for Samson. So as we look at this story and we compare the two volumes, something interesting pops up. When you're reading the first volume, or well, both of them, here's what happens: Samson sees a woman, right? That's what starts off both volumes. That woman, or a woman, in the second volume is not the same woman he started with, but a woman obtains his secret and then betrays his secret. The first woman found out the answer to the riddle, betrayed him, and then the second woman found out the secret was his hair, and betrayed him. Then in both episodes, Samson is bound. He's hiding in the cliff, or in the cleft, and the Judah, uh, the Judah brothers come, and they, he says, okay, bind me, and then he's able to break it, and then he slaughters all the Philistines, and after the slaughter of the Philistines, he calls upon the Lord for help. In the second episode, they bind him. This time the binding worked, but he still slaughters all the Philistines after the binding by calling on Yahweh for help. So the story ends the same, and then both volumes end with the formula, he judged Israel 20 years. So you see again the genius of the author putting the two volumes next to, next to each other. You see what's the same? Right? You see how they're the same? Uh-huh. Why'd you tell it to us twice? Because now I want you to see what's different. In the first volume, three separate times we're told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. That's how he had his power. That's how he was able to accomplish what he accomplished. That's how he was able to do anything against the Philistines. And so in chapters 14 and 15, we read that the Spirit rushed upon him. The Spirit came upon him. And then in chapter 16, we don't hear that once. Not one time do we see anything about God stirring in him or rushing upon him or the Spirit doing anything. Samson's on his own, man. He's doing his own thing. And so this this this, uh, digression from being God's man. As he continues to presume upon God working in him, eventually God's not really rushing upon him anymore, and Samson doesn't take notice. That's the difference between the two volumes. At first, yes, he's an idiot, but but God is still rushing upon him and using him. And in the second volume, you're like, the, the folly of Samson has caught up to him, and God is like not there anymore. God is kind of taking a back seat. He's not actively using him the way that he was using him in the first couple of chapters. So as Samson continued his foolishness, we see a distancing of God from the fool. I think that's really clear when you're reading through it. You're comparing the two stories, and that difference is supposed to jump out at you. And then there's another layer to the story that I want to point out before we talk about what in the world this has to do with our lives today. His story is full of secrets. Samson has a lot of them, doesn't he? He kills the lion in secret and doesn't tell anybody. He eats honey from the carcass of the lion and gives it to his parents, but he doesn't tell them that it was from the carcass of the lion. Then he uses that secret and makes it a secret to his guests in the form of a riddle. And he tells them a secret that they can't find out. He's controlling them. You can't figure out my secret. And so I'm able to control you and manipulate you. And when that doesn't work for him, he's angry because he wants control, doesn't he? And it doesn't work. And then his final secret is his hair. And that's really how he's had control and power throughout the entire story. And finally, at the end, he lets the cat out of the bag of that final secret, and now no power at all. And so you see Samson as a secret keeper. You see Samson as someone who's using secrets and lies to control and desecrate others. He doesn't care how it affects other people. Doesn't care where they're going to get the money from to fund his new wardrobe doesn't care that they're not supposed to be eating stuff out of a carcass. He's doing his own thing in power that he's presuming that Yahweh is always going to give him. And so he just goes and does whatever he wants and uses secrets to try to get his own way. But really the secret keeper is God. If you look at chapter 14, verse 4, you remember Samson started this entire mess By seeing a Philistine woman and wanting to marry her. That's how this entire mess started. Samson's story could have been very different. But he started with this act of disobedience. And the parents are obviously distressed. We thought you were going to be in ministry. We thought you were going to be the leader, the savior, the deliverer. We spent all this time staying away from alcohol, staying away from certain foods, keeping the pantry a certain way, even all the other kids were able to have certain snacks and you couldn't. We kept your hair long and we kept doing different do's and pinning it up and stuff and dealing with hair all over the shower, you know? Whatever. All this stuff that we had to deal with and now you're just going to throw it all away and go marry a Philistine? They're like they feel like everything is 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 out of control. But it's not out of control. Because Verse 4 of chapter 14, his father and mother did not know, there's the secret, there's God's secret, they did not know that it was from the Lord. Why would God produce this situation where the, the man that he's raising up to be a deliverer is interested in a Philistine? Why would God oversee that? Why would God allow that? Well, it tells us he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So God has a secret. Looks like God's man is out of control. Looks like God's man is doing everything that he's not supposed to be doing. And he is. He's not obeying God. He's not trusting. He he calls on God when he needs him. He's thirsty. But he's not obeying God. But God's secret is that he's still able to use that guy and still accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the end. The reason why he raised Samson up was not to raise someone up and go, look at Samson. Isn't he awesome? Nope. The reason why he raised Samson up is to take out the Philistines. Now, if Samson's going to end up being a bad guy, that's on Samson. But Samson being a good guy or a bad guy doesn't derail God's plan. God's plan is take out the Philistines. And he did. He just didn't do it in a way that went well for him, did he? You know, it's amazing. The climax of both volumes... Are this, is this prayer. But in the first volume, he's praying and calling out to Yahweh to save him, right? I'm dying of thirst, save me. He wants his life. But then in chapter 16, the Spirit of God is not there. He continues to go his own way. And then his second prayer is the opposite, isn't it? God, kill me. Allow me to take all these Philistines out with me, but take my life. First prayer is save my life, and the second prayer is take my life. How did he get there? Disobedience? In other words, Samson's disobedience didn't derail God's plan, but it could have been different for Samson had he been obedient. His disobedience doesn't destroy God's end of the covenant. God's still going to keep his end of the covenant and still accomplish the overarching purpose that God wants to accomplish. But in the meantime, the little details of Samson's life went very differently because of Samson's disobedience. So what we see is in these stories is another display of God's awesome sovereignty, that God is over all things, that he's not going to be derailed, that he's not going to uh, go, oh my goodness, Samson, you're not doing what I told you. You're not doing what I told you. What we see in Samson is a picture of Israel. God is communicating through this book to Israel, the original readers of the story, this is what you're like. You know, I raised you up. I gave you certain rules to live by that everyone else around you doesn't live by, that the other nations don't live by. And the deal is, if you cooperate, you're going to be blessed. But in the end, I'm going to accomplish something with this nation. It's a promise that is based on who I am and what I'm able to do. Yet in the accomplishing of that great purpose, you all can wander in the wilderness or go straight to the promised land. Your choice. You all can have a book like the book of Judges where you're spiraling down into chaotic destruction. Or you can, you can fast forward to a king like David. You want to keep taking these detours that destroy you? Because it doesn't destroy me. It doesn't destroy my plan. Israel, that's what you're like. You know, Samson went after a woman. In Israel, that's what you do. That's the whole point of the book of Hosea, isn't it? God tells Hosea, I want you to marry a woman that will not be faithful to you because you're going to be a living living illustration. That's not the calling you want from God. God is calling Hosea to be a living analogy of how Israel keeps going with other women instead of remaining faithful to Yahweh. Samson is the failure of Israel. They presume upon God's grace. They presume upon God's power. And then when God's power leaves them, they don't even notice it. That's why at the beginning of the story, they're not even calling out to God anymore. All the other cycles, they can recognize we're being oppressed. We're not supposed to be oppressed. We're supposed to be God's people. Well, why are we God's people, but we're also oppressed? Our disobedience. Well, then why don't we call out to God then? And by the time you get to chapter 13, it's like that doesn't even dawn on them anymore. No one's even paying attention to it. They're so used to disobedience, they've forgotten what it means to be an obedient people where the land has rest. So how are we like Israel? You know, when we get into the debate about whether you're once saved, always saved, or whether you can lose your salvation, oftentimes the critique that they'll offer to say, look, you you have to be able to lose your salvation because If God saves you and then you can't lose your salvation, you can do whatever you want. And so it can't be that. Well, there's two problems to that. One, life isn't all about eternity and salvation. There's stuff that happens along the way that could be really messed up. Everything isn't about your salvation. What about the glory of God? If you only come to Christ and worship him because of this mansion that you're waiting for, Are you really worshiping God, or is God a genie that ultimately allows you to worship yourself because you're going to get a big house in heaven? It's not about you. Second, it's not true. It's not true biblically to say, if God secures my salvation, then I can do whatever I want here without consequence before that ultimate salvation. That's not true. That wasn't true for Israel. That's not true in the life of Samson. Did God accomplish in the end what he wanted to accomplish? He used Samson to take out a bunch of Philistines? Yep. But all along the way, Samson went from a guy who was distracted to disobedient to completely disregarding God's presence in his life. That's how his prayer goes from God, would you please give me thirst? I'm thirsty, would you please save me? To a place where he goes, God, just would you kill me? My life is so miserable. God still accomplishes his purpose, but all the way, all along the way, the disobedience was a path of self-destruction. And so we don't serve God going, thank you, God, you cured heaven for me. Let me go do whatever I want. Well, is God going to uphold his end of the deal? Of course. If you're truly a believer, one question we could ask, would a true believer pray that? Would a true believer go, thanks, God, I'm going to go do whatever I want. But the things that we do in between, guys, matter. The little disobedience, the little partial disobedience, the secrets that we keep to control the way our lives look, will end up biting us in the end. God warns us about these things. Remember when he told Cain, Cain, there's something called sin, and he wants it's crouching, he wants to jump on you and have you and take you, but you have to master it, Cain. And he didn't. And guys, that, that warning serves for all believers everywhere. Yes, we can proclaim that God will finish what he started in me. He will accomplish the salvation that he started in me. But the sanctification process, the, the being matured into the conformity in the image of Christ, that process matters. And so what this book is trying to convey to us is the life of obedience versus the life of disobedience amongst God's people. God's calling us to live a certain way, and if we don't live that certain way, hey, God doesn't lose. The book of Revelation still happens. New heavens and the new earth, that still happens. But what are our lives going to be like on the way? Do we disregard the rules? I know we're not supposed to eat from the carcass, but nobody knows. Nobody sees. It doesn't affect anybody else. Yeah, it affected your parents, man. You desecrated them. Well, what they don't know doesn't hurt them. You see the kind of logic that starts in the beginning and ends in what we see at the end of chapter 16, which is tragedy. I think what the book of Judges over and over again, especially this episode, is encouraging is not to presume upon the grace of God. I say, God, thank you so much that you're so forgiving. I know anything I do, you're going to forgive it. That's true. But don't let that translate into a loose on obedience because God's going to forgive anything anyway eh, it doesn't matter no it does matter and there are consequences God can be really showing up in your life and really making things happen or he can kind of take his hands off and go look be Samson then I'll still accomplish what I'm going to accomplish but you want to leave a wake of destruction that's on you you want to use your high school years or your college years to just do whatever you want and then maybe when you get married you'll take God serious? that's on you you're going to destroy your life you want to you kind of just raise your kids however you want and then take it serious later? No, now, 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 you're going to blink and your kids are gone. How did you invest in them? How did you shepherd them? What are the secret things that you're hiding? They, God sees them, but you, no one else sees them, so you think it's not affecting anything, and it's affecting things. So let's pick up that carpet in the tent and dig out all that stuff we've been hiding, right? Just take it to the Lord and say, God, I, I need help obeying. Let's, let's do the first prayer that Samson offered, not the second prayer. The first prayer being, God, I'm thirsty. I can't continue to do the work that you have in front of me without your help, without your strength, without your, your sustenance. And not the second prayer. God, I know I look back on my life and I just really messed it all up. Will you just help me just end well? And by that time, it's, it's, it's too late. Maybe not for ultimate salvation, but to live a life that was God-honoring, God-glorifying. The time is now. And we don't tap into our strength for it. We tap into his strength, just like Samson. It wasn't his strength to accomplish the things that God had in his life. It was God's strength the whole way. But obedience would have made it different for him. Just like obedience would have made it different for Israel. They could have skipped the whole book of Judges. And it could be different for us. I want to invite the worship team up. As we close in worship, let's, let's worship a God, the God of Enhokori, the God who's there, provides when we need it. And let's use this time of singing together as a call out to the Lord to, to supply strength to us where we need a strength to be obedient. So if you're able to stand, please stand and let's sing together.